0: You know what the, the beauty of the cold open is? The beauty of the cold open <laughs> no is that you, that you can make it meta and like endlessly meta. It's like, it's like you know, it's a whole thing with shoties all the way down, yeah. you know? Like yeah. it's endlessly meta because the thing is we've been rolling for a couple of minutes already. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking about how we should start this. Yeah. And yet here we are Ooh. talking about it now in front of the audience about how we should start it because we still have no idea how to start That's this true. thing. Yeah, that's true. So that's good. It's it is just like one of
1: the great things about this podcast—the
0: the cold open. It's yeah, the, maybe the only great thing about this podcast, <laughs> if I really, if I'm really honest about these sorts of things. Anyway, to jump into it, um, we've been teasing this for a while, Shoddy, uh, in various ways. Uh, we've got two friends on, so that's new. I don't th- I think we've had two people on since Peter Pomeranzov and Karina Orlova that's stopped. True. By. That was
1: early on, yeah,
0: and that was really early on. So. Part of the problems was me solving all the tech difficulties of making this happen. But we have two of our friends who are part, not just part, but like founders of the reading group that we have talked about a lot on this podcast.
1: The secret reading group. The
0: secret reading group. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got <laughs> Sam Kimbrell and Ositan Wanevu here with us. Uh, welcome, gentlemen.
2: Hey, chaps. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: Do you want to say who they are? Or? That's huh? fine. No, they're awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, they are awesome. Why don't you say who they are? I don't know who they are. They're just these people.
1: So, um, okay, (laughs) sure, I can do that. So Samuel is um, a political philosopher uh, by training. Um, He is the author of a book called Sacred Knowing
3: friendship as yeah Oh, sorry friendship Pre- as sacred friendship knowing friendship as yeah.
1: sacred knowing what was the subtitle again uh, yeah i mean the, the subtitle should have been the actual title which is overcoming isolation oh yes that that's because we all believe in that so that's important i
0: mean that's that's the <laughs> i mean demir me doesn't <laughs> but about other people that's a, it's the ultimate covid book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but published way before yeah it's true yeah sad true.
1: and Osita is a staff writer at the new republic is that cr- uh, the correct title
2: that's correct
0: yep yeah. One of I would say uh the, the the brightest uh and uh yeah most brilliant voices on the left, I think that's fair to say.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh well thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anyone who <laughs> I don't really know what that says about
2: the rest
0: of the <laughs> <laughs> left. Uh, well there's that. There's that. But what I like is that I he's also unpredictable. Yeah. When he's calling for the abolition of the US Constitution, <laughs> that was unpredictable.
1: <laughs> well we was should it? probably contextualize <laughs> that. <laughs>
0: perhaps not not that unpredictable yeah anyway contextualize away shoddy or osita who wants to
1: i'm sure it'll come up in the in the conversation we don't have, um unless will, osita yeah. wants to say a word about it
0: yeah okay maybe you're right since the conversation is we'll probably tend that way uh it's it's uh it's worth uh it's worth maybe saving anyway i don't know osita i don't know maybe you start us off and, and say a few words about about uh you know the idea behind this reading group i i joined a little late uh shoddy's been there since the beginning i think um, and I don't know, just say, say a few words about like, you know, what did you guys, what were you guys thinking when you were doing it? Cause you know, I, just from my, from my side of it, uh, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. Um, it's been like a really interesting and uh fascinating group of people, several of whom have already been on the podcast. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, for me, it's been, a. uh, enriching from just like a, a friendship beyond the intellectual aspect of it. It's been really great. So I don't know. Why don't you guys just uh, tell us a little bit about what, what what was what was on your mind when you uh, when you came up with this idea?
2: Yeah. I mean, Sam's really been the lead here. But, you know, I, I met Sam first at a Super Bowl party, actually. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because at, we both love Liz football Frennick's. so much. Because we were just insane football heads. That's right. <laughs> obviously. Um, but no, we met, we met at a Super Bowl party at Liz Brennig's place and he and I sort of had a conversation about, I guess, the media and political discourse. Um, and you know, I, I was really interested in the fact that he was a philosopher and I hadn't really met him. I don't know that I'd met a philosopher before I met Sam, or now not a philosopher at least. You know, I, I surely hadn't spoken to one since since college. Um, but you know, we were talking about how exhausting political discourse can be, and and sort of the craving that each of us had to have deeper conversations, more meaningful conversations about um, political issues and, and ones that were informed by you know academic literature and. Uh, old-timey philosophy, and, and wouldn't it be great if we could have a space and other people could have a space where they could engage um, subjects that are on everybody's minds on a higher level than we typically do uh, in our day-to-day political conversation. Um, that's that's really the, the germ of the idea for, for where the the group came from. And, you know, I guess for, for over a year now, we've had... Uh, these happen semi-regularly. At first, we were talking about nations and nationalism. That was the first set of discussions we had, and we did a lot of reading and convening around that. Uh, we solved for all time the question of what a nation is and whether it's good. And uh, unfortunately, we're not going to tell you. We're just going to keep it a secret because <laughs> this is also um, this is
0: also a secret cabal to actually control <laughs> control the world. It's not yeah. it's not actually yeah. for public. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Well, okay, I mean, so I mean, I think that there, there is a way in which. Um, I know Sam feels about this, but there's a way in which I think you could reduce what we 're trying to do to a kind of well, this is about civil dialogue and bringing people together and realizing that we're all uh, we're all great friends and all of our differences can be sort of solved yeah. by a glass of wine and you know that kind of thing uh, and I don't really believe in any of that i just I yeah, just sort of think same. that in order to um, get to the heart of certain ideas. It's important to tug at them from different directions, you know, and, and convening people who don't agree can be a useful way of, of doing that. Uh, the point isn't necessarily to get everybody to agree. Um, if we disagree bitterly about something and continue to disagree bitterly about something, that's great. That's fine. It's just creating a space where different people are taking swings in an idea is sort of the, the important thing here. Um, I do not think that this is a solution to our political divisions or anything uh, like that, but we've had different kinds of people from different parts of the ideological spectrum participate in this. Uh, people have invited uh, new people in and we've been sort of, we, we've let people do that. I think now we're at a place where um, the group has gotten large and, and Sam's going to take one half of it and I'm going to take uh, another half of it. And we're going to bring some people on and, and the course of doing that um but the, i think the way that sam and i are talking about it now is that you know we could have an umbrella we still don't really have a real we, should we debut the name i think we, we come should come up with
3: yeah that's 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 uh, the, whole for goal the first here. time ever i think so yeah
2: cool. so 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 we're gonna call this thing premises now let me it, let me it give refers, a bit of,
3: let me get a bit of background here so the name has been very understated and so the the default name that we've gone by is uh, to name it after Demir's derelict apartment here. Uh, so we've gone gone with Logan Circle as as the background. But uh, we um, we do actually feel like we should kind of name this now that it's going to become something more
2: significant. Mm. So yeah, premises yes. it is, yeah. Go on. Premises it is. And so that's, that's the umbrella name. And so the way that we were thinking about structuring it is there'll be like a large umbrella group, I guess. But, you know, I think the vision is... Each individual, there can, there can be like individual chapters. So like a group of people can be convening in DC and another group uh, where I am in Baltimore and then a group in New York and uh, California, you know, Paris, wherever it is. The, the idea is that there's going to be a central set of readings on a, sub- tubge- a subject or a topic that uh, we want everybody to kind of discuss. Um but, you know, there are going to be these little chapters where people are going to have different kinds of discussions. Different people are going to be involved. Um, and, and you know, the the immediate thing that compare it to is like McDonald's, you know, like different franchises. <laughs> Franchise it, yeah. But the idea, is, yeah, the idea is like, you know, all over the country, you know, you could potentially have groups convening to discuss at a high level democracy or nationhood uh, or wherever it happens to be. I, that, that's sort of an exciting model to me. I don't think that, you know, Sam and I have kind of racked our brains and we haven't really come up with something comparable to this where you have, uh, a space, a routinized space where people can come in and, and, you know, without having to still be in college, you know, come together and, and discuss, uh, ideas in this way. So, you know, it, it, we're, we're both excited by that, by that prospect. You, you know, but I've, I've talked long enough. I no, mean, no, no. Tense, but, you know, just, just really, to, to
0: jump into, like, I don't know, uh, uh, well, not, not at all complicated, but I think just sort of chime in. I think that the, the really good thing about it, and I think the, the, the important thing, I mean, it's sort of basically what we do on this podcast as well, is just like figuring out like basically these core terms, these premises without, without an idea that there's agreement. I mean, Shadi and I hate each other all the time. So it's, it's, <laughs> but, but no, I mean, in general, I think that that's, that's the important thing. I mean, you know, uh, franchising, uh, the groups and, and having that be across the country, uh, I, I think there 's a lot of potential for that, but I, the real the real selling point is is this is not i think um, the idea of uh building consensus and bring, building some kind of unity on it it's in fact it's in fact fi- in fact like Shadi's favorite thing it 's agonism in in a lot of ways like yeah. uh, idea
1: based agonism yeah i mean it 's really core to what wisdom of crowds has always been about, which is we 're not trying to persuade or convince or win arguments. The goal is to interrogate why we believe the things that we believe. And that just seems, I think, for all of us to be the most interesting thing. And it's a lot more interesting than um, a debate that is about claiming victory over an opponent. And that's really the cool thing about being part of this um, secret reading group cabal is that we have— We are actually quite different. I mean, there are, there are major divergences that have made themselves apparent over the past year and a half. But I don't think there's ever been a time where that's been a problem. So we're, in some sense, we're all comfortable with the notion that there are no solutions to the problems that we're exploring. And that's, I think that's also hard sometimes for Americans because when we see problems, we immediately, instinctively look for, a solution where a can-do people or society or whatever but i think it's i think the much better approach is to say some problems don't have solutions and that's okay and to sort of suspend that we can be in this kind of perpetual suspension of not having an a definitive answer to a question and never once um has it um Kind of, um, devolved into argument or anger or people not wanting to talk to each other again. Uh, maybe just we're really lucky that we were, Sam and Osita were able to pick people who they knew were just very respectful. But I think that it's possible to be civil without seeking civility or consensus in the way that American, American commentators talk about it. Like, if only we can come together and agree and be fluffy and all of that. No, we can be respectful but we can really hold true to profound differences in how we view first principles.
0: So, I mean, Sam, where do you come at this from? Like, where's where's your background? I mean, I I, I really wanted to at some point just throw in that Mel Brooks joke about the stand-up philosopher. Remember that one? That was, I think History in the World Part 1. Did you bullshit today? No. Ah, bullshit, artist. Anyway, no, but I. So, I'd talk a little bit about the role of philosophy. I think, or yeah, like, in what you think in the, the, uh, um, because I was a philosophy undergraduate, and I, then yeah. I, I drifted to other things. So, I mean, it's 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 at least it's been so uh nice to have the leisure to do this kind of stuff a little bit on the side. But I don't know, just talk a little bit about you know you as a philosopher and yeah. you know because yeah. uh, all the rest of us we're 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 far too practical. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, so i th- i let me um, go um over the same story that Osita just told and kind of give a little bit of my perspective about it so um so he's right, so we met at Super Bowl party. I think we were like sitting in the dining room talking about Kafka instead of um like whatever and um and i um I've had this sense for a while that disciplines, like the ones that I trained in um have um a lot to say about. The kind of direct pressing issues that we are facing as, as sort of societies and people and have a kind of skill set which uh, is at least submerged in places that people from the outside don't recognize outside the outside the university um, but there's also an absurdity there which is that all of these people are mainly writing for one another um, mainly sort of uh, sitting in uh, dusty lecture halls, not able to kind of articulate in any deeper sense. Um, what what their their livelihood has to do with the broader society. And so I've been really intrigued since being a postdoc in this kind of project of how could you um, develop a, a broader pedagogy for this kind of thing in public. And so Osita and I, I think, just really had a kind of meeting of the minds about that from very different angles. For me, so I really agree about this basic, this substantive point that Shadi was making, which is that there is a kind of, Way that we're not going for consensus. The idea that we're just going to talk about ideas and then we're all going to come out of these th- these readings agreeing with one another, and suddenly the soul of America will be healed or something, is very, very far away from our our approach. But I'm not sure that, for me personally, that doesn't mean that I'm a nihilist about about how reality works. I, I'm not sure about Demir. Right. Demir, um, this may be something that w- that we should actually argue about a little bit. But um, for for me, I actually. I think that part of the reason why I think allowing these conversations to, uh, go in a very diverse set of directions, the reason that I have confidence about that is actually because I, I do have a pretty basic sense that reality is big and it's big enough and it's worth kind of wandering through it and figuring out all the like strange idiosyncrasies to it. And I should say, so I, I lived the first, um, nine years of my adult life in, in Britain and, um, Moving back to the States, this has been one of the principal things that has been really shocking to me is the way that Americans kind of go for consensus and for smaller rooms as quickly as possible. And and I'm I, I'm not actually totally sure about why that's the case. I wonder sometimes whether it's because it's such a big country and we do have so many diverse opinions that people sort of shelter in small communities in a way that they f- you know, people that already think like them and and feel comfortable and then just don't have a, a strong public ethic for how they come together. I'm really interested in sort of a very different project than that. How how can we end up just being direct and straightforward about where we don't agree with each other at all, but in a way, in a way that doesn't sort of just rip everything apart?
0: Osita, oh, do you have any thoughts about why that is? Like, where does where this American pragmatism come from? I mean, because it's pragmatism to a certain extent, or at least that, that was my first thought hearing you just say that. There's something... There's something that, uh, well, you know. I mean, it's it's pragmatic to get along on these things. Basically, it's it's pragmatic to come to consensus, even if it's not like a deeply considered sort of, you know. I well,
1: don't know. maybe. Well, Demir, maybe we want to come to consensus, but I don't think Americans are particularly good at actually doing it. So there is this kind of aspiration that I think people talk about it a lot, but when you actually look at our public debate, it's pretty rambunctious and raucous and. People arguing, and in a way that I I don't know if we necessarily see to the same extent in certain countries in continental Europe, where, um, uh, well, first of all, there isn't as much of a, a sort of a culture of um of of kind of free association, civil society, where people are kind of just on. Entre- you know, political and media entrepreneurs starting their own publications, their own online outlets, podcasts, not to the same degree as the U.S. So the U.S. has this increasingly and incredibly diverse space where people are arguing very vociferously and every, and a lot of people say they want consensus, but actually what they're doing is, um, is, is kind of contributing to this very, almost like this wild, you know, free for all. The podcast world, I think, is sort of like the Wild West in a way, but also I think Clubhouse is the new emerging medium where everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. And it's no surprise that Clubhouse is most popular in the US. It's gaining in other countries in Europe, but it's it's still not, you know, still a long way to go. And that's perhaps because these social media platforms are starting here. But um, I think there's a kind of tension there between like how we want to be pragmatic and get along, but we're actually not getting along.
0: Well, I'll, see, I'll let you jump in a second. Just maybe one other to as you react to Shadi, uh, the thing that 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 also came to mind as Shadi was just describing this is the fact that, you know, the American Revolution, and the rest of this was all is pamphleteering as opposed to book writing. It was it was a profusion of pamphlets and and a lot of this rambunctiousness comes from a certain kind of. I don't know. Is it is it a is it a shallow approach to it? Like a more sort of vituperative and yet like less grappling with things. I don't know, Sita What do you think?
2: I mean, I, I think it would be important to to sort of draw a comparison between our intellectual and political climate here and what prevails in Europe, which I can't really do. I've only ever been in an America and haven't really spent very much time in Europe. But part of me kind of feels like we believe in consensus so strongly in this country because we've had a Comparatively stable history with less kind of tumult than, than I think most European countries. I mean, to the extent that we've had violence on this continent, for the most part, it's been violence that we ourselves have been perpetrating. And I so I think that there's a way in which that stability allows us to tell ourselves a story that everything that exists here is the product of some kind of consensus and uh, forward, consistent forward motion in history, right? Whereas in Europe, you can't really. Allow yourself to believe that, just because everything 's been a mess for so long, and uh, everything 's very contingent and uh, unstable i think I think that difference has really shaped the american mentality yeah i don't know i mean, i 've been doing myself a lot of reading about the American Revolution for a review that I hope to do in in the next couple of months, and it 's just so plain that like a lot of things that we take for granted as a country is a product of being the products of some kind of grand consensus. Ages ago, uh, all of that was a product of agonism, right? And disagreement. And, and if we came to certain compromises, they weren't compromises that were forged out of some kind of high-minded, uh, sense that compromises is, is what we ought to do. It was political necessity. You had to get this or that state, this or that constituency on board in order to keep this fragile thing together. Um, and, and it's been a great feat of, uh, propaganda through the years to elide all of that, and, and to sort of tell ourselves politically that the only way anything happens is this: country is if you get everybody to agree on X or Y, it's just not the way things work.
0: And the fragilities, I think, is <clears throat> one of the things that like keeps me up at night. It's something we've talked about at least, sort of, in the nationalism discussions. You're losing all the time. sleep over that, Demir, all the time. Fragility keeps me up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, look, I mean, also, it's it's reflected in the name of our country, and I think Ann Snyder said this once, where. Um, there's only like two or three countries that have the word united in their name. Uh, we're one of them. Oddly enough, th- one of the others is in um, the Middle East, United Arab Emirates. There might be a third one, but I can't remember what it is. But it does say it's, something. It's <laughs> united Kingdom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Shady, it's cool. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. I forgot about that one.
0: Yeah.
1: Go on. Oh, Dig no, was, yourself no, out of no, that, that that's one. All I, Look, that's all I have to say. There. <laughs> that's really all I have there. But I mean, uh, no.
0: But the fragility thing is, that, you know, is is, is uh, and and that that question of consensus and stuff like that. I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it's one of the things that that uh, is most remarkable about this country is that. Uh, and I mean, you know, when we were we were talking about uh, and when we were talking about nationalism, it was like, what what is it that keeps this country together, <clears throat> and the. Uh, you know, I guess one way to look at it is this kind of or at least you know if you're to do some sort of comparative stuff you'd say uh it it used to be this kind of like wasp aristocracy that that bounded together and this kind of feeling and knowledge that this you know old boys' club was still somehow in charge and you know that that persisted through a good chunk of the twentieth century and then was uh you know basically taken down and and basically uh, call it the ideals of the founding. Certainly, the ideals of the post Civil War refounding—you uh, know—were taken more and more seriously. Um, and the question is: is is you know, uh, is the idea enough? And I think it would be a mistake to say. Uh, I guess you know, I mean, Osita, you, you were gesturing at this idea of propaganda—that you know, sort of like to to this I- propaganda of consensus. But it's interesting to me how far the idea is the only glue thing has been pushed especially in the last couple of decades and how far it's going without without that kind of glue and it's still holding together and i mean you know there's a case for real optimism there um and this gets back to the whole sort of you don't need you like you can still have a glue through the kind of conflict um but i don't know sam i mean like say more about this idea what struck you as the difference between the United States and Europe? I mean, this approach to ideas, this approach to philosophy, uh, does it have something to do with that Americans approach it still somehow differently, like in a more clipped way, in a less whole way? And maybe that's a better thing than, in fact, how the Europeans do it. I don't know. I mean, to, to Osita's points about it as well. Go on.
3: I mean, so when we were setting this thing up originally, and, you know, I should say, I mean, our intent was initially about D.C. specifically, so it was a kind of sense that there are a lot of people here who are very interested in a much broader kind of conceptual world than the one that they get at their day job at a law firm or on the Hill uh, or, or working at a magazine. And so figuring out how we could develop an intellectual project where that outlet could operate in a certain way felt really productive to us. But one of our explicit ideals was the kind of circle around Hannah Arendt uh, in the sixties. And one of the things that we liked about that that context was, uh, well, for one thing, it's interesting. I mean, how many of those people were uh, emigres from from Europe and, and specifically somehow being dispersed from the Second World War? So there's already like a really fascinating European versus American contrast uh, operating in that context. But one of the things that we really liked was the sense that it was one of the places where we could look where the mode in American discourse was exploratory rather than uh, didactic. So for me, it feels like there's a very, and maybe Shadi and I will argue about this a little bit, but it feels to me that there's actually a kind of problematic Protestantism that runs through a lot of the American project where people have a kind of um, moralizing and sort of very propositional ethos to them. And that shows up in a lot of very secular ways now, but it seems to me that it, it has this kind of deep kind of Protestant root to it. What when, Demir, when you were talking, the contrast that I think about a lot is between a society that's built around will versus a society that's built around exploration or inquiry. And there are many examples, I think, of both types of societies throughout history. What's striking to me is how um, few Americans can remember what it was like to live in a society of inquiry, but they have these longings for it. So this idea this this emphasis on ideas like you're talking about doesn't have um what i think of as like a kind of a natural rootedness that's flowing into it it doesn't have this sense of a kind of background community that has this broader sense of exploration to it but we know that we would like it if we could get it and so then we keep trying to fabricate just unpack
0: unpack this idea of society of will i've never heard that before and like how does that apply to the united states it's just so orient me and presumably a couple of listeners who yeah
3: (laughs) so that's good so i this this is a kind of scheme that i've thought about a lot in reading uh thomas Hobbes. so Hobbes view seems to be that the primary driver of human action is uh, desire, interest, kind of getting what's your your own. And so his main question that he asks in political philosophy is uh, how do we – since that's basic, since people just are going to have swords out for one another, how do we develop in such a way that we can limit some of the worst and most catastrophic effects of of that kind of situation? And it seems to me that America – has that view pretty deeply in its bones, actually. We're more interested in how we organize violence than how we would achieve a kind of... Um, a, the, we're more interested in how we would organize violence than being confident that there would be some something that we could actually achieve at, in a more harmonious level. And it's a real contrast with some of the texts that um, that we we've, we've been looking at in this group recently. So, I mean, Plato the entire project is a sort of critique of that idea of will. His entire view is that um, you only get into that kind of will competitive dynamic when you've been somehow basically alienated from deeper structures of reality. And, uh, you know, that's a real debate, which one of these is actually real. And Plato feels the real burden to have to argue it and argue it and argue it. But, but he does, in the end, have that kind of confidence. And I, I find that kind of contrast really fascinating. So,
0: yeah, yeah, um, but interesting then that, that, uh, the attitude is, so Protestantism maps onto Hobbes. Yeah, I think
3: so. I was probably the other way around. I mean, I think Hobbes, I think Hobbes, Hobbes sort of like lives in that world already.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, Osita, how do you approach religion? Because that's another sort of thing that we actually haven't done in the, in the reading group. But, you know, it's, 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 again, one of these sorts of uh, issues that keeps bubbling up in a lot of these sorts of things. What's your, what's your sort of, I don't know, um, not necessarily personally, but how do you, how do you, even, how do you even conceptualize uh, its role in society?
2: How do I conceptualize religion's role in society? Well, you know, it's very important, man. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> no, like, I think, I think it's, it's formative in all kinds of ways. Uh, I th- I think that you can tie a lot of you know the American ethic, even in in contemporary times, back to Puritanical attitudes about and Protestant attitudes about uh, you know having the power to interpret and take your your own salvation into your own hands rather than relying upon an existing hierarchy. That 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 sort of central belief. Some people have said animates the American Revolution in important ways. So, you know, it, it, it's something that you can't really ignore, but you're right that it hasn't really come up uh, that strongly in uh, our discussions. Although we did have, I think, two sessions ago, uh, we talked about French Amari uh, and what's been going on on the, the conservative, on the, on the social rights and, and the role Catholics have played in debates about where conservative social politics can go, uh, should go. It, it's 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 always sort of there. Uh, I think even now people tend to overstate the extent to which we've disconnected ourselves from uh, religious politics. As I said in that discussion, I think that um, that understates the, the role religion still plays within the Democratic Party and uh, amongst liberals. You know, we have this sort of revived religious. Uh, you know, there's there a lot of left people now who are coming at socialism and, and bringing America in a more progressive direction from uh, a religious place and, and, and using religious arguments to, you know, I guess, undergird their, their secular prior. So all of, all of that is still live and active in our politics, uh, even if it seems like we're becoming a more and more secular country, even though I think some of the secular ideals that we cherish uh, at their roots um, have origins in uh, religious debates, uh, centuries ago.
1: And I think this, um, this reading group has been a reminder to me that even when you don't talk about religion, you're talking about religion. I mean, just speaking for myself, even if I'm not explicitly talking about God or religion, a lot of what I believe is somehow related to that. Um, and it may not always be obvious to the listener or the reader, what my starting premises are. But if I didn't believe in God, if I wasn't Muslim, I think a, a number of my views would be significantly different. And that's what's, and you know, it's interesting to kind of like dig a little bit deeper. And 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 I, I try to do this sometimes on the podcast. I mean, we we talked in our last episode about theodicy and the reason we talked about theodicy, i.e. the problem of evil, is because it came up in our reading group and I, I made some dismissive comment um that we you know i didn't really say as much as i probably should have said about it that islam doesn't have as much of a problem with the problem of evil as judaism and christianity do and i'm sure that there would be christians and jews who would um, maybe disagree with that in some ways but um i think the problem pro- the problem of evil which then relates to free will which then relates to accountability and accountability is a central question in democracy i mean all of the i mean how you view free will and accountability will affect how you view the question of democracy
0: right and i mean this sort of gets us to to you know the the crux of the matter which like what we're dealing with right now is is in the group is sort of the question of democracy Uh, i'm sure you guys didn't have a chance to listen to that but that was a weird place that shadi and i ended up last time which is basically you know this this question about Again, my, my my cynical approach that you were alluding to earlier about a lot of these things uh, echoes very much, you know, um, uh, stuff that, that Luke von Middelaar has written and stuff that, that uh, uh, gosh, what's his name, uh, Inventing the People, Edmund Morgan has also written, which we did read in the last session, uh, about basically how the... the, the you know the the story of democracy is one that is actually constructed based on on the back of some pretty raw politics uh but the the question of theodicy if i remember correctly shoddy came up also because of this belief in democracy and this sort of gets at what we're just getting at about the role of religion in this country and the sort of founding um that's not just in this country i mean it's 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 expanded to the broader west that this uh I mean, one could say there's a faith system around this concept of democracy that uh, and a whole morality that flows out of it um, that uh, has all sorts of implications about how we, you know, structure our societies. Uh, And, you know, uh, part of the theodicy argument was the argument that we were having about about populism. Ultimately, it's because, you know, uh, there's how, how could it be that a democracy could yield uh, negative outcomes if democracy itself is the good, you know? I mean, and that's, that's the sort of, you know, the, 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 the question that I think, uh, you know, not explicitly what Germans themselves have been dealing with since the end of World War II with all their restrictive anti-democratic measures within their societies that they have. And the
1: analogy with, with religion is, in a world where God is watching us, how could he allow for this kind—this degree of suffering— so then you have a godlike arbiter in Western democracies. And in Germany, they have something called, uh, I always forget the name of it. Um, it's like a long German word, but it's I basically the, are. the federal office for the protection of the constitution or something. And they're sort of like a godlike arbiter that decides that if there is too much bad outcomes through the democratic process, they can then use their extraordinary powers as this overseeing institution to block those outcomes. I don't believe that God should interfere and stop suffering for complex reasons, but briefly, if God stopped individuals from committing bad acts, that would undermine the whole system of accountability that is fundamental to the idea of religion. Because how can you be condemned to hell, or how can you be rewarded with heaven if God is stopping people from acting according to their own free will?
3: So, uh, let me say a couple of things about this this question about religion. So, for me, one of my primary uh, areas of interest and w- place where I read a lot is in late antiquity because it strikes me as I'm very interested in these periods when there are wildly diverse views that are kind of having to come into con, con- uh, contest contest with one another in some way or other and uh one of the things that uh strikes me about that period is that our division between secularism and religion is very parochial actually so the the way that i think most societies have recognized or a number of societies have recognized this kind of situation is that there just are really difficult questions about existing you end up waking up into this place it's very confusing you are very confusing you're not sure what life is about and then the process of trying to figure out how you sort of pull together a life has felt like a very pressing need to many many societies now we're in a period where we're able to assume a lot of resources from previous societies that have asked these questions in various ways, some of them religious, some of them more uh, secular and technocratic, and have built up a kind of reserve. What strikes me about what you were saying about populism and democracy is that we're finding ourselves um, assuming a lot of resources, but having very little idea about how we might replenish them. It's unclear to us what the process by which you would sort of come to conviction about how you should live in a different way might be. And I think that that goes to the stuff that you're talking about, Shadi, which is that one way of thinking about human action is to have like a very strong accountability structure about it. And um, that's a way of reading what what you are, what human action should be, what society is, and also what the, the cosmos is in, in a certain basic sense. Now you can have very different ones than that and very different foundational convictions, but somewhere it seems like you need some some way of living in relation to that set of that set of factors what what the cosmos is what you happen to be and how how to live and it's not obvious that we're in a position a good a strong position to figure out um new answers to that kind of set of questions
0: except just to then clarify going back yeah. it's protestantism that is too parochial for it so that religious approach ends up yeah. narrowing it and there's a more humanist approach coming from Plato that is in a way yeah not not less holy, but well, humanist, so not secular either, but humanist, yeah. broadly humanist. That's what you're getting at, though, right? Yeah, I think it's something like that. I mean,
3: played, so the, um, I think that there, there are many traditions that end up running themselves into uh, cul-de-sacs pretty, in pretty problematic ways. And you know, this is the kind of question about not how are we going to get this political campaign to work, or how are we going to make sure that our party is successful over the next decade, but what is the structure of our whole civilization? How does the story at a much broader level work? And that's the level of political experiment that I'm most interested in. This question of, you know, the um, the relative youth of this country is—it's a political experiment, and it's a fascinating one. And it's also very young, and we're trying to figure out how it's going to work. You know, over on a centuries timescale, not just on a decades timescale. And there are some, I think, inheritances from Protestantism. There are some inheritances. I think, from cer- certain strands of liberalism that uh, have led us astray in certain directions. There are also some really fascinating resources that we do have to pull on and trying to figure out how that's all going to work out, I think, over, over in 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 a period where these things are put under extraordinary pressure, like what we're in now, I think is really fascinating.
0: So, I mean, part of the the thing we wanted to talk about uh, is also you know what you guys are going to be doing uh like basically on the website alongside of what we're doing here. Um, I don't know, see that maybe you want to say a few words because you're sort of hinting at it throughout this whole thing, but uh, broadly democracy, what we're doing as a reading group, you guys are going to be sort of shepherding along uh, a series of, of, of notes on it. I don't know, say a few words about like what, what you envision to do here.
2: Yeah, sure. So the groups are going to be discussing democracy um, over the next six or so months. Uh, and as part of that, we're going to be writing, and, and Sam and I are going to invite others to, to write and contribute as well, some uh, essays, meet-me-Q&As, different kinds of content on, on the website, um, tethered to what the groups are doing, and, and all exploring uh, democracy from its first principles. Uh, in the same kind of defamiliarizing way, we, we uh, try to tackle nationalism and and, and the, the nature of nations. Um, the idea is just to sort of extricate ourselves from taking democratic values for granted I, I'm very supportive of democracy uh, number one fan here but I, I think it, we're, we're at a place number where uh, democratic values are coming uh, under attack and, and and being scrutinized in, in new ways and, and developing at least for me a, a coherent response to them uh, and to, to sort of think about how we might rework democracy in new ways for me that that's those are things that require a real return to first principles um, and, and a re-engagement with debates that have been had uh, for centuries now about what the nature of democracy really is, whether it's workable or desirable. Um, all of that we're going to cover as new ground, really, and, and hopefully all that process leads us to, to thinking about democracy or looking at democracy with, with new eyes.
0: Yeah. I don't know, Sam, say a bit more about like, you know, what, how, how does that, how does that basically play out in, in, in practice? You know, I mean, uh, again, given especially that, uh, what I was alluding to earlier that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's so embedded into our, our common consciousness as a, you know, just the default and the default, uh, you know, the default ethic more than anything else, how, how, do you, how do you even how do you even plan to start picking this apart?
3: So I should say first of all, there, I think there are two reasons why we found ourselves really attracted to s- setting this up in some kind kind of coordination with you guys. I think that there is a sense that that commitment to try to trying to strip things back to first principles is really shared between what we've been building both within our sort of closed door seminars, but also as we've been conceiving what more public formation f- versions of that might be, and then. I think the second point is what, what we've, we're talking about already, which is this question about consensus, is that being able to take a long road and not be sort of forcing issues into a smaller box, but be be willing to explore things, allow them to kind of unfold in whatever direction that they might. So I I think it's that second point that I look at when I'm thinking about democracy specifically is that it's fascinating. When I was thinking about... Uh, moving back to the States. So I grew up out West in Colorado. And the thing that attracted me to sort of setting up adult life in the States rather than in Europe over the long term was the sense that it's, it's a younger place and there are really challenging issues, both in its history and in its current moment. But there's also an ethos of being willing to explore and to risk in a certain way. And that's partially a function just of where it is in its, and it's sort of in its, in its history. And um, my sense is that there is a, an ethos in certain places in America that knows that there are features of reality that are worth exploring and that those features are more fundamental than simply having your faction win in a certain respect and so i'm really interested in sort of figuring out how that works like paying attention to um i'm one one discipline i read a lot in is ethnography paying attention to how people just actually live not sort of trying to idea uh, sort of put the ideals over it too 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 quickly but playing out what is life like and what what are the tensions and how does the suffering work and what what kinds of possibilities for hope can you see in a certain community and uh it may be that our, we're at a place where the broader sense of, of um, worry about democracy is acute enough that we're, we're becoming more... Att- My hope would be that we might become more attuned to that human level than just the system, s- systemic level. We, we play out these questions about how the filibuster works, uh, the nature of, of voting representation over and over and over again. I'm much more interested in that human stratum below it. And then it will have implications for how we organize our political structures. But until we get more attentiveness to that human structure, I think that we're going to end up finding ourselves without many sources of inspiration at that point.
1: And this reminds me a little bit of um, what Bruno Machias had said when he he came on the podcast a couple months ago, that, um, you know, history ended in Western democracies, except for in one country, and that's America, that we are in this, in some sense, untethered to the the world as it is, there's a kind of fantasy and dream politic that Americans indulge in and are still open to, that can be scary, and it can lead to very bad decisions and chaos and Trump and so on. But it also means that we are not bound in the same way that, say, Western European countries are. And the vaccine rollout, I think, is one example that he brought up and we talked about um history ended you have the EU as this technocratic overseer and you lose a sense of imagination you lose a sense of what's possible
0: yeah i mean we can we <laughs> could really no i mean i am I'm just I'm, I'm just really trying to think which way to take that because i mean you could you could get into to all sorts of interesting uh political debates about this but i i do also
1: think we probably want to stay away
0: from no, those we right now. No, no,
1: we don't want to talk about the vaccine. I'm just giving that as an example. No,
0: no, no, not as a vaccine, but just basically, I mean, even throwing it out there as to, you know, what is the what is the role of the state and then, you know, the proper role of the state in these sorts of things. I mean, I guess that, you know, it gets back to the that 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 question about the special sauce in the United States, right? And and, <clears throat> you know, some of the things uh you have been alluding to or well, both of you guys have been alluding to uh is you know it's 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 part of this this kind of uh religious conviction it's kind of it's part of this well on the one hand parochialism but also this kind of openness right um that that leads to experimentation um so i i don't I don't know exactly how that maps onto uh political preferences basically you know and like the the role of the state in in actually doing some of these things i mean there's there's the obvious sort of dumb uh libertarian argument that obviously you know these things sort of uh, what is it what do they call it emergent order or whatever it is that that they talk about and uh Invisible hands and in the rest of this. But but then there is the the other question of, of the failures of the overweening state and all of this. And and uh, ultimately, basically, uh, yeah, even even the role of the nation state. I saw our friend Nils Gilman wrote an essay uh, saying that that in Noema in magazine just came out saying that, in fact, uh, you know, the very idea of the nation state is completely becoming outmoded, that the problems are too big and too small at the same time. So it's just completely useless. And even, even, even went so far as saying that the problems of populism are the fact that, you know, the, the, the demos is becoming frustrated with the inefficacy of the, that sort of middle layer. So that we need to devolve up and down at the same time. I mean, this all slots into this question of democracy. And again, this sort of faith that we have in it. I don't know, Osita, I mean, as a as a as a man of the left, where do you where do you even sort of where do you even start tackling these sorts of things?
2: Well, as far as the nation state goes, I mean, you know, everybody who's on the left has to hold out a hope that um, you can achieve someday a kind of global solidarity uh, where political borders that exist today aren't really relevant, and everybody's living um, with some dignity that, that you know. It, It doesn't matter where you are, you're part of an international working class that that, that has power and and all of those things. But I I think that ultimately, in practical terms, um, achieving that world uh, inevitably starts uh, with achieving uh, those kinds of changes at the nation state level. Um, And so one of the big questions for the left now is how do you how do you offer a critique of the American nation? in ways that allow you to be politically functional, right? I mean, you were talking about the extent to which we, we believe in experimentation in this country and there's kind of like an openness to, to new things. I actually, I, I really take the opposite view. I think that we are astoundingly stuck and set in our ways. I mean, we, you said at the beginning, I wrote, I wrote this thing... uh not too long ago, about abolishing the constitution and replacing it with, uh, with some other order. Pe- people are very scared of this mm. idea and, and react very I'm strongly emotionally it. to it. Sorry? I'm scared of it. Shadi's got his hand you know, up. It's
0: shaking, Shoddy. terrified.
2: <laughs> He's scared of it. But look, like, you know, I, I think it, it is striking given how radically we came into an existence, uh, how people. Uh, how tethered how people are to the existing form of government and to the existing constitution and to existing ways of, of thinking about politics. I mean, the constitution we have, as I point out in this essay, was the product of what was essentially a coup. These, these people came together, they saw that the Articles of Confederation or you know, preventing the government basically from collecting on uh, taxes and, and implementing the austerity policy that they wanted to, to implement. They're like, we can't, we can't have ordinary people, uh, rising up and, and saying they're not going to pay taxes. We need, we need something that's going to create a strong government to replace it. So they ignored the process that the Articles of Confederation laid out for amending it, came up with a completely new document, basically strong armed all of the states into ratifying it. That's, that's how the Constitution came to be. And so for people to react kind of emotionally and, and, you know, so strong is the idea that we could basically do the same <laughs> along democratic uh, values and you know, and replace the transition we have with some other document someday or some other kind of order. Um, I think that tells you how, how afraid people can be in this country of, of really re- reworking things and going back to first principles, in part because Yeah, you know, I think it was Irving Howe who said this. I'm not really sure, but I think I think it was him. Um he, you know, his prominent, famous democratic socialist and, and critic, said, you know, one of the reasons why we haven't had a robust left in this country is pe- because people believe the revolution already happened, hmm. right? Hmm. We settled all the, the main democratic questions and created this sort of ideal order at the very beginning. So everything else is superfluous. Nobody's going to listen to you if you say, well, actually, we haven't really done anything. The revolution hasn't started. We need to completely change everything. Um, I, I think that's generally true. I think that the Americans believe that they have developed the ideal political system. And we're just going to have to solve all of our problems working through it um, from here and, until the end of time. And so the challenge for the left is how do you challenge that perception and, and level critiques of the existing political order in American history uh, in a way that doesn't just sort of turn people off and and um, in, in a way that, that keeps you politically viable? Um, and that's a very sort of... It's not like a high level question, but it does speak to sort of this high level concern that Sam was kind of talking about, about, um, you know, how do you open the door to inquiry and, and how do you create a kind of intellectual environment where people are capable of thinking about things in, in an abstract way? And it's really hard. Like I, I, I'm not a believer, as I said at the very beginning, in this kind of model of civil discourse that gets battled around, where you assume everybody's a rational actor and open to argument, and if you make the best argument, that's going to win, and uh, people are going to agree with you, and that's the, the process of deliberation by which progress is made. I, I really, really don't believe in that at all. I think we have a society where... Different coalitions assemble uh, on the basis of their interests, and some win sometimes, and some lose other times. And uh, that contest is when the left is going to have to win, uh, not necessarily by sort of abstract arguments, but but it is going to be important on some level to to break through emotionally um, and and kind of break up the the kind of attachment people have to the existing order of things in this country.
1: So I've, I have a question, Asita, and, you know, maybe we should actually have an episode at some point about, you know, whether the Constitution should be abolished or changed significantly. And, and that could be like a fascinating conversation at some later point. Maybe it'll come up in some of these democracy, um, essays that we publish. But I, I guess, and this is where I, I maybe don't have the courage of my own convictions as someone who claims that they're an agonist and I'm comfortable with conflict. There's also a part of me, as Demir has noted before, that recoils from too much conflict that I start to get a little bit jittery precisely as you suggest that I do have my limits and I'm, I'm wondering go like where do you because presumably if there was some effort to um completely rethink our relationship to the Constitution or perhaps even replace it with something quite different that would pres- you know would presumably lead to quite a bit of um a divisiveness in our country, and it would um, intensify conflict in a way that I think would be frightening for a lot of people. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, how much conflict how much, uh, divisiveness are you willing to tolerate? Also, let me just sharpen that question just a little bit because it's, it's,
0: it's related. I think you rightly noted that it was founded on a coup. I think most states are founded on coups like that and then papered over with, with, with narratives around it. Uh, are you proposing, are you proposing, uh, something of a democratic coup of like a, a war for hearts and minds that then like refounds this thing? No, I mean, I'm serious about that, because, because it is one of those things that that I think is striking about about a lot of this talk. I, I, I don't think states are founded peacefully with consensus. I think that's, that's definitely false. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Well, no, I mean, I don't think there's gonna be a moment anytime soon where this is like a viable thing that's going to happen. I, I, what I lay out in that piece is, you know, maybe a Several generations from now, 100 years from now, 125, 150, we might be in a place where this is, is possible, and you could, I don't know, convene a new convention. Um, I'm not. I don't have a lot of confidence now, partially because the main people interested in reworking the Constitution are actually voices on the right who want to do things like a balanced budget amendment, and there's there's some funding uh, for that that's being you know thrown out by the Koch brothers and other other donors. So I, I, I'm not suggesting that this is something that, that ought to happen now. I, I, I sort of. I wrote that as as a way of introducing um, a kind of novel way of thinking about the Constitution that could gradually uh, allow for certain reforms on the path to making the United States, a, a fully democratic society, some sh- sunny, shiny day uh, way, way, way in the future. Um, but Shadi is right. Like all of this – Talking this way and and radical change and advocating for it is is divisive. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I wrote that piece, and uh, within a couple of weeks, you know, a, my partner discovered a, a blog post where someone said I should be shot over it. Mm. Um, you know, so I don't I don't uh, <laughs> I, I don't deny that this is this is divisive. But look, I think anything that is worth doing anything that we've regarded as as positive steps. Uh, this country and, and liberal society have taken, all of that has been extremely contentious. And I think we're better for having taken on those challenges and, and sort of gritting our teeth and, and accepting conflict as, as the price for, for making all kinds of progress. I just think I think you have to you have to be willing to do that if you're somebody who has a, a normative, moralistic outlook about the world. And that's actually one yeah, of the core just sort of where I land. I don't think there's a way mm-hmm. of, of I should say, you know, part of this is I, I don't really see, and this is something we've talked about in the group a little bit, but I don't really see a way of diminishing uh, the, the tone and tenor of American political discourse and, and bringing the country to a, a less divisive place. I, I think there are going to be all kinds of forces over the next century that continue to fracture the country, to split us apart, uh, to make various constituencies angry. Um, this is going to be a, a very unstable, violent century, um, from my perspective, and no. I don't really think there's anything we can do to avoid that. I oh think no, no, no! The best no. we can really wait, wait, wait.
0: Shadi's has to raise a family. Why? Why are you doing this to him? He's scared.
1: <laughs> no, but it's, it's but <laughs> it's interesting because um, one of my like main intellectual inspirations, um, the Belgian philosopher Chantal Mouffe. I mean, she very much argues yeah. that progress is an outcome of conflict. So she's pr- probably closer to Sita on this. And this is where I think I'm. I just I say, I don't think it's the inevitable outcome. I think, yeah. it,
2: I, I don't think it's the inevitable outcome of prog, uh, of, of, of conflict. I, I, I see conflict itself as inevitable. It produces good things sometimes, and sometimes the outcomes of conflict obviously are, are very bad. I, I don't see it as, I, I, I'm, I'm not, advocating for a view of the world in which conflict leads inexorably no, yeah. to a better uh, better. But better would place. you say
1: that to have true progress and meaningful progress in the sense you've just described, you do need some, it's it's necessary to have some degree of conflict and, and polarization and, and divisiveness? I think that's probably fair to say that it's necessary, but not sufficient.
0: And we all agree on that, no?
2: I, I, I'm I, hard-pressed I, to <laughs> think of a major social change that has not been won uh, without a significant amount of disruption yeah. – that's, uh and, and and in many cases obviously violence.
0: And in fact, all rule is underwritten by coercion ultimately. So there's implicit violence in just basically ordering a society. I don't see that as all that as at all actually all that contentious.
1: Yeah, and and this is where maybe um I think that I'm sort of changing at this point in my life where as you uh, look to your family and your future and your <laughs> white picket fence. To be clear, this family bourgeois. doesn't exist. But I I, I mean I can no, I think, and this is always the question, that when people who are maybe more radical in their youth and they're sort of thinking about setting roots and having something more stable, they start to lose um, lose this interest in in radical activity. The taste for blood. The taste for blood. But, I mean, I, I have this preoccupation with boredom. I think there's something appealing about being bored, but not to get into that because, you know, we've... If you guys want to get into that, I think... Um, <laughs> wait, where did we talk about that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, clubhouse, probably. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, so That's not recorded. It's too bad. That was lost to history. Thank God. Anyway. But Asita, do you ever think that you'd want to be a little bit more bored?
2: Oh, I think... all Who wouldn't want to be live in a peaceful... Quiet, <laughs> you know, uh, non-violent existence. You know, I, I just don't think that that's in the cards. That's my point. I mean, who who would, who wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody could, uh, sort of, retire peacefully to a suburb and, blah 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 blah. First of all, if if some of us accept that, uh, and sort of retreat from politics for that reason, and and retreat for from, uh, certain fights because we think they're going to be disruptive, then other people. Uh, who are at the very bottom of our society are never going to enjoy that kind of peace and stability and tranquility, right? So I, I personally feel a moral, a moral responsibility to not just sort of take the easy way out and, and avoid discussing certain things and avoid making certain arguments, because I think that that's going to uh, be be a more peaceful and, and civil way to go about things. I mean, I think that civility as experienced by uh, the, the strata of society that actually discusses and debates politics, that is always resting atop of exploitation and oppression. There is always some other portion of society that things are not quiet and peaceful and, you know, <laughs> foreign, and they don't get the white picket fences, you know? Um, so that, that's just kind of how I feel about it. I, and and the other thing is I said, like, I, I just don't think that we can even expect even, political elites necessarily in the century ahead uh, to live at a distance from disruptive forces. I mean, I, I, my politics at this point and, and, you know, what you deem as, you know, as, as a radical stance, I mean, it, all of that is sort of animated by reading about climate, honestly. I, I think that climate is probably the area that has shaped my own political shift over the last five or so years. And, um, more than anything else. I mean, it's just a fact, from my perspective, that countries like the United States, as developed as they are, as as rich as we are, are going to be really upended by climate impacts. Uh, And the ways in which stability is going to be upended are going to have real implications for our politics, are going to deepen our political divides. And I I just don't think that there's any getting around that. You know, you you, you can hope and, and sort of pray for you know, things to, to simmer down and for all of us to, to come to a place where we can discuss politics in a civil way and blah, 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 blah. But it's going to be economically disruptive. You're going to have a massive influx of people to this country who I think we should let in without any question, personally, from a moral perspective. Um, but there are all kinds of things that are going to really radically disorder politics in the century ahead. And and I just don't think that hoping uh, otherwise is really productive. The thing that strikes me, that the
0: difference between... Uh... Basically, Osita and I is that Osita is a much more moral person than I, and as a result, <laughs> I think that's the difference between a more left-leaning and a more right-leaning person. Ultimately, is that it comes down. No, I mean, I'm, I'm actually. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but uh, but I'm sort of serious about that. And I mean, uh, I, I don't. I don't really quibble with anything that that he said there except the part where i and i mean maybe this is a way to sort of circle back to the the core question of democracy and how these things are structured i'm just I'm, I'm skeptical of i guess morality carrying the day in some in some of these questions like i mean you know it's fine to it's fine to 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 say that you know we have a moral responsibility to let people in but the pol- the political realities of that i just don't think we'll admit it and so similarly as we're talking about the founding or refounding of the of uh, of the republic one way or the other I, I i think such things happen by by means of coercion and coups not by means of suasion and and the changing of a polity's sort of i don't know moral commitments i i'm just very skeptical of that But
1: someone on the right would say that they're more moral because yeah but no no i'm just to explain what yeah. they would say is um that if you have too much conflict and instability and opening up the borders that it's hard that does complicate say um, conserving the family um, and uh, preserving traditions and building things that can be very meaningful on the local or community level. And that if you have too much instability, and you don't have enough security. A lot of those fundamental building blocks of society come into questions. So I think there is a way to make a moral case for um, a more stability or security-oriented approach to American life. I just want to just put... Just no, that, to say that's that it, fair.
0: That's fair. I mean, I, mean, I, I think, I, I, think that's
1: possible. Yeah, go ahead, Mosita.
0: Sorry.
2: I, I, I think that's possible. I just don't think very highly of the argument. I, I, I think that if conservatives are interested in expanding family values and and, and you know restoring the American family and increasing uh, religious uh belief and church attendance and all of these great things that still conservatives claim to be interested in, the number one thing they can do is expand immigration from Mexico and Latin America, right? These, these are populations that are extremely religious, uh, families very important. Uh, you know, if if they were genuinely interested in those values, I think there would be, a, you know, a very strong case that the immigration policy of the last uh, administration uh on on those grounds was was pretty indefensible, and 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 you should really <laughs> re-examine it if you if you claim that you want to sort of have a more socially conservative, more more Christian aligned, uh, population. So you know, I I, I I think that you can argue things uh, both ways. We should probably get Sam in here because Sam. Uh, <laughs> well, Sam, Sam I, is, is is looking for a higher level. No, 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 for uh, sure.
0: And, and I think you know we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll let Sam sort of elevate us now for this thing. I just want to just quickly say that by you know the the distinction between me and UOC is I'm not really on the right as the thing. I, I have no truck with yeah. these family people. I don't care about them either. <laughs> but anyway.
2: Gosh.
0: Um i don't know sam- uh sam i don't, why don't you say a few words then basically, I mean you know this is sort of a a taste of some of these sorts of yeah. these sorts of debates that we're having uh you know i i like i think specifically the 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 role of democracy. For me, you know, I mean, it's funny how even before, uh, you guys had told us that, you know, you're planning to sort of do democracy as a sort of next phase of this. Uh, it's something that's come up a lot with what Shadi and I have been talking about because I think it is so foundational to America, to America's self-conception, to the American idea, and to basically whatever, you know, we as intellectual flaneurs think we're doing, you know, it's just, it's, it's somehow, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's key to everything. Uh, so I don't know, uh, I don't know, elevate, elevate our little shit fight here to something, to something more meaningful. <laughs> sure.
3: Well, no. So, so I think that the main, the main thing that I feel as I listened to, uh, this last segment was this sense that the key questions are still, um, not systemic questions. So as we're talking this out, we're saying something about how the, um, the structures of the country, whether it's related to uh, immigration, to uh, climate policy, to the the stru- the structure of the constitution, um, that all of these things need to change, and that it's going to be a feat of political organizing. So, the the thing that I'm always especially interested in those kind of conversations is that that seems like the way that um, people who do all of us who do have a significant amount of kind of access to power in a certain way would think about it is that we do have the capacity to kind of design or blueprint society in a certain respect. But that's, that's a couple of steps removed from the questions. I mean, and Osita, I'd be really interested in in this. So, so certain aspects that draw me to the left um, tend to be, the ways in which it's attentive to uh, suffering and to things that have been neglected by sort of broader forces brought broader sort of social projects as they, they've sort of run their course forward. And I, I think that that's um, incredibly admirable about the left. And I, I find myself uh, very deeply drawn to it. And, and both Shadi and I were kind of in Bernie circles for um, that part of our Our political cycle and it and it very much had to do with exactly that kind of um, that kind of that kind of feeling. But the part that I end up then usually sort of distancing from a little bit is the sense that um, the way that this will all get resolved is by a sort of feat of political will by which a new structure can get put in place. And one of the reasons why I tend to be resistant there is that it seems to me that a lot of the acts of barbarity in history tend to happen based upon um, expectations that we could sort of solve the human condition in a really basic sense. Um, and I think this goes to the this issue about democracy that we've been talking about, and um, sort of the relative success in, in America versus Europe during the pandemic. The weird thing about the pandemic is that, like, this is the most histor- historically normal circumstance, like, of them all. Like, this idea of disease sweeping across a population is not at all surprising. Like, this happens over and over and over again. And... um and yet we've treated it not like a kind of story about human life. we've treated it like a story about political organizing that somehow states have been massively negligent in their duties, and that uh, we can play out this like calcul this very complicated calculus about which states and which aspects of their political structures actually turn out to have been able to accomplish this thing well, whereas I mean, sure, like the question about vaccine distribution about um t- testing, all this stuff that we went through throughout this entire process, those are important questions. But it's also just the case that this is um a ver- very normal circumstance. And figuring out what kind of human resources you have in the background in a population to be able to approach something as normal as like sort of waves of death sweeping across a continent, Um it seems to me a far more... Uh, pr- preliminary question to the subsequent questions about what kind of political organ, uh, structure we're going to design.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's true. And, and, you know, there were a couple of sessions last year where we talked about the pandemic and, and what it meant. Um, and one of the questions I remember raising when we were doing that was, you know, why was it uh, that even given how many people had died, uh, you had not really seen a whole lot of public grief, um, in response to what to, to what was happening. We're now at a point where over half a million people uh, have been killed, and, and I don't think we've really seen uh, any kind of expression of public grief that on that that sort of commensurate with. What, that. what do you and, mean, and, public you know, grief, you know, I, for Well, I mean just sort of you know in, in the past where we've had kind of like natural disasters or terrorist attacks and, and this or that, there has been a real effort, I think, on the part of Political leaders to uh, memorialize the dead in a sort of really explicit yeah, way. That's right. um, in, in a way that I don't think we've seen here quite yet. You've had people make speeches about how bad it is and how sad it is that people are dying. But I, I think that there's something very different about this uh, in contrast to what I remember 9 11 being like and yeah, the aftermath of that. Um, in a way that i guess it 's hard for me to summarize and, and capture, but so i 've been thinking and thinking and thinking about that question for the past year and why that is um, and I think it ultimately one of the answers i 've come to come to is related to what Sam is saying. I think that if we acknowledge how if we acknowledge that we are sort of still subjects of history. In that way, where you can have grand tragedies kind of sweep out of nowhere and really upend life, if we acknowledge that we're still vulnerable to those forces and vulnerable to nature in the very same way that civilizations from the dawn of time have been, I think that weakens our sense of uh, self-possession, of control. If if, if we really acknowledge the magnitude of what has happened here, I think we, we like to believe that history has ended and we've exempted ourselves from it and we've surpassed it and all of the, the hard questions about uh, the right way to live have been kind of finally and firmly answered. And we don't need to reexamine those first principles. I think having an event come in and say, well, no, like this is a civilization like any other, it can be crippled and it can fall, is really scary. And, and, I, and I think that that, to me, that, that is part of the explanation as to why we haven't seen people deal with this on, on a, a truly human level. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, so
3: the two points that I would make in response. So one is that the question of the uh, bar- barbarous aspect of the society, I think, very much is tied to this. So it seems to me that the more that a society ends up distancing itself from things like death, the more it also has to kind of keep an inflated mechanism uh going to be able to do that. And that means that it's also much less likely to recognize the sort of collateral damage that's, a, that's occurring on that basis. Um, and then, I mean, the second point about uh, sort of co- collective s- structures of mourning, I mean, it's not clear to me. I mean, this is pretty close to kind of my interest in isolation. So it's not, it's not really clear to me. It, part of the issue of loneliness and the division of people at like a very micro relational level does have to do with the fact that we're kind of ashamed of, of all of these like much more human features. And so, you know, for, for me, like the kind of structure of philosophy is playing with the highest and the lowest levels. So you keep alternating back and forth between those. And then maybe on that basis, you can work out some stuff in the middle, but the question of like direct human vulnerability at the lowest level and then these big questions that we're asking about whether the cosmos hangs together, what, what it means for a society as a whole over, you know, centuries time span to be able to have coherence. I think those are the questions that I'm most interested in. And, um, and, and part of this is being able to approach a time when you have a half a million people die and not just have it be something that each individual family, a lot of poor families, also some sort of middle class and wealthy families, are having to face just completely on their own resources without a sort of broader social structure that makes that possible.
0: And so maybe, maybe the way to, to, to tie this up, though, Sam, and maybe to tease you out a little bit more on this, it's that, that despite this idea of, you know, the agonistic approach to ideas, uh, there's still a grappling towards a truth. and Or at least that the act of grappling at least gets us to a healthier place. That is along the spectrum of truth, like, as opposed to an unhealthier place, and that we we reside in a particularly unhealthy place in any case, right? Yeah, I mean,
3: so that's that's a super interesting question. So one of the distinctions that I often think a lot about is this one that several of the Greeks, especially Plato, make between sophists and philosophers. So sophists are people who take reason and then make money off of it. So they just go out and sell their craft in the market, tell all of these big inflated stories, have sort of nice marketing campaigns. And then, it, as far as we can tell, end up being fabulously wealthy based upon it. Pundits. Pundits. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pun, yeah pundits in, in contrast to professors. Um, and then the point about philosophy is that um, it's it's the people that have recognized that if they're going to follow this path of reason, they're going to end up in, in a world that they can't control that doesn't become their slave, that's not something that is just simply able to be turned into a subject to their whims. And that's the one that I'm much more interested in, like what it turns out to be, how you end up sort of uh, um, articulating the final vision of that, I think is a really complicated, it's, it's not something that you can sort of define down into a specific political project, into a, par, you know, a particular, uh, piece of property that you own and own within your lifetime. But the whole argument, the whole sort of um, the witness of that entire tradition is that's a life worth living, even if it turns out very badly for you, like it does with Socrates. It's still something that's worth that's worth pursuing. And that's that's, I think, finally kind of my interest in it.
0: Well, all right, gents. I mean, I think this uh, at least sort of gets us to a good place to, you know, announce that we'll be launching Uh, sort of an intro essay by the two of you and then sort of opening essays by both of you uh, later this week as we as we get the uh, uh, the podcast ready, Uh, you know, the reading group is still technically in a beta stage as we, you know, now experiment with splitting off like an amoeba like splitting the one body into two other separate globs and see how they grow. Uh, but the ambition is i think is is uh is is really inspiring and it 's really awesome to be part of something like this because i I do think that uh you know something like this really does have the 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 chance to be pretty big uh you see a lot of these sorts of i think you know grassroots movements are that are premised on on the opposite of basically building consensus and are basically building consensus on basically common sense and i think there is an appetite to grapple with difference in substantive ways to uh really uh, yeah just go at these big questions and these big ideas uh in a way that uh is productive if 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 not always constructive um, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm pretty excited that that you know we're 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 a small part of this, and I'm looking forward to see the how, what the next few uh, few months bring. Should and I'm I be excited
1: about spreading these reading group cells all across the nation, and like then, a pandemic of sorts, <laughs> <laughs> and then across the globe. Um, but this is, I mean, I'm really excited too. This is great, and for all of you who are listen who are listening, stay tuned. If you want to get these opening essays straight into your inbox when they come. Out, they will be free, available for everyone, um, and um, so just go to wisdomofcrowds.live/slash sign up, and then you'll be on our list and you'll get our uh, free content. I mean, we would also encourage you to consider subscribing and becoming members to get um, paid content, but we'll take what we can get. Um, so. Stay tuned, and thanks so much to Samuel and Osita for joining us. Um, I think this was actually one of, one of the most meaty, philosophical, and theoretical discussions we've had on the podcast. So we hope you guys enjoyed that. Final word from Demir.
0: No, none from me. Osita, you, you've been silent. Anything, anything, any parting words from you?
2: I don't think so. I, I just think this is a great conversation. I'm glad you, uh, you invited us. Oh, excellent. All right, same Likewise, thank you guys. Good night guys. See
0: you yeah. guys. Bye. Take Bye. care.
2: Bye. Bye.